morning, Northbridge. The Lord be with you. I said it was better than I thought. Good job. Um, as I'm trying to get this turned on, if you can flip to Philippians chapter 2, we'll be in verses uh, 12 to 18. And as that is happening, got a small uh, correction that I need to give. Uh, last time I was up here, I said Ray was not going to be part of the series. I was wrong. He joined us for Philippians, but he did that as a way of serving those of us, the rest of us who are part of this uh, series, not only by organizing a retreat last weekend, but then by coming here late at night, driving back to be able to allow the rest of us who are there to continue there to get as much out of it as we could possibly. So I know he's not here today, but I want to thank him for that. One way you can think about our passage, uh, which I believe Cody mentioned when we were looking at this together, a group of guys, is think about depending on where you're at uh, age-wise or with your family, think about your kids going away for the weekend, for the week, for the first time, or going away to college, and then them calling you saying, I'm not sure I've got it in me. That's kind of what's happening here in our passage, is Paul is encouraging this church to remind them that they have what they need, that they do not need him. Paul is encouraging them to be without him, and he's telling them the work that their new life requires, the method of that work, and the cost that that work will entail. See, so like I said, yeah, think about your kid calling you saying, I'm not sure I can handle it. You'd have to give some kind of reinsurance. reassurance. That is Paul's goal here. That is my goal here. Paul's task, right, is to articulate these three things, the work, the method, and the cost. So as we're looking through the text, keep those things in mind. Um, And as you're doing that, I'm going to read our passage. And I really like, I think Phil did it, but if you guys could stand for the reading of God's word, I like doing that. And I'm already standing, which makes it easier. Cool. So starting in Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Take your seats. Um, I want you to notice, right, if we're looking at structure, that's something one of our principles, it's one of my favorite principles. If your Bible is like mine, you can see pretty clearly the editors have put uh, a divide between verses 13 and 14. So that breaks this passage up into two sections. I think, though, that having read it and looked at it, it's really hard not to see 17 as its own little um, addendum, its own little closing thought. So for that reason, though, I have it in these three. The work, again, 12 and 13. The method, which is 14 through 16. And then the cost, found in 17 and 18. So we're going to dive into the text, looking at each of those one by one, starting with the work. I'm going to reread each section again, just because probably reading God's words better than anything else uh, that I might have to say. So 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right, so I think we all notice this passage starts with a therefore. And there's a uh, thing that people say all the time, you have to know what the therefore is there for. Well, it ties back into what was just said before. Because every knee will bow, in verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king. And right before that, that, verse, that section also starts with the therefore. Right before that, he's saying, because Jesus humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, that is why he is exalted. That is why his name is exalted. So you could say, essentially, because Jesus was humble and obedient, he is exalted, and he is the king of the cosmos. And all of that is what Paul is referring to when he says, therefore. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I know that's not what the text says, but that's the idea. But Paul puts a lot in between the therefore and the command. A lot of stuff that, if I'm honest, I generally think is kind of additional fluff that isn't really helpful, but God seems to differ. So I want to look at the things that Paul adds and ask why. Why does he add these things? Why is the command itself not sufficient? The first thing he adds is care. You can see that in, when he says, my beloved. He's showing them that they are cared for, that he loves them. You see, all throughout the Bible, commands come in the context of care. The two are never separated. It is always a, hey, you know you are loved, so go and do these things. Second thing he adds is confidence when he says, as you have always obeyed. Right? Think about the kid with uh, going to camp or the college student. Right? You can do this. You've done it before. You can handle it. That is essentially what Paul's adding here. He's giving them confidence. Now, the third thing he adds is consistency. Uh, in 12 there where he says, not only in my presence, but much more in your absence, or much more in my absence, sorry. He's calling them to consistency. He's telling them to be these type of people, whether he's there or not, whether the pastor is present or not, or if you're a little younger, or that cute girl or cute guy's there or not. He's saying, be these people, regardless of who's around. We see then what he is adding to this command is care, consistency, uh, and confidence. So Paul is surrounding his command with those things. But the actual command itself, I think, needs a bit of an explanation. A bit, I mean a big explanation. The command is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we're going to slow down and look at these two phrases, uh, work out your salvation, and then with fear and trembling, quite a bit, because if we don't understand them, we're going to miss the point of this passage. Particularly, too, we might misunderstand what is salvation, and we might misunderstand who God is and what he's doing. Because all those things are pretty essential, this verse is going to take a while. So first, when it comes to salvation, we have to realize there are basically two ways of thinking about salvation. We're either going to see it as something that you're working for or something that you are working from. Naturally, we all see salvation as a goal, something that you have to work for, live up to. Yet God sees it as a gift. When salvation is something you are working for, when it's a goal that you're trying to obtain, there's got to be some standard that you're measuring yourself with. 
And as I'm saying these things, I'm not trying to say that if you notice this stuff in yourself, that means you're not a believer, that means you don't understand salvation. What I'm trying to say is, according to the Bible, we all have this pull in us, and the better able we are to understand our tendencies and the tendencies of those around us, the better able we are to encourage one another. With having some kind of standard that we are trying to live up to, I think we only have three options. The first option is that we ourselves are going to be the standard. When that is the case, you probably feel pretty good because you're living up to it. You might not be able to understand why, what's wrong with everyone else, but you, you know what's going on. And I know you would probably never say it, but the less people look like you, the more you know they're in the wrong. Now, they probably would say that, but I know that you guys never would. This mindset, though, tends to lead to downplaying our own sins while playing up the sins of others. When we recognize that we can't understand why someone else would do something like that, that this mindset is what's going on in us. We are realizing, well, my sins are understandable. This person's so totally out of the ballpark. This mindset leads to slander when it comes to others, leads to a bit of self-righteousness, and ultimately on its own, it would lead to death. The second standard, though, that we could use is the standard of other people. If other people are a standard, and it could be you're measuring up against somebody, you're living for the praise of other people, if, the, if enough people tell me I'm doing well, then I must be doing well. But what you'll notice with this is that you have no option but to consistently and constantly weigh yourself against others. And it is exhausting for those around us, but particularly for ourselves. Now, I don't think in this one I have to say that much, because my guess is if that's you and that's your tendency, you're probably sitting here saying, great, here's another thing I'm not doing well that everyone else has got. The last option, though, that we might weigh ourselves against is God's law. Now, this one is a bit nuanced, because to a degree, that's a good thing. That is actually the standard. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. We see the glory of God is found in his perfections. At the other, on the other side of it, Scripture says at the same time that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, God says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we see two sides to this coin. One is what we are called to. On the other side, you're not going to measure up, and I'm not going to measure up. This is where we need to slow down a little bit again to understand part of what's going on here, to better understand salvation, better understand how God has set up this world, and what our lives are meant to be. Sometimes when we recognize we're falling short in this standard, we may have a tendency to call God's law bad. And that's something that I want to say we shouldn't do. James 1.25 calls the law the perfect law, the law of liberty. In Romans 7, Paul calls the law holy, righteous, and good. The reason I'm pointing that out is because we do need to recognize the problem is not with God's law. It's with our own sin, which the law highlights. Listen to chapter 19 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is on the law of God. It reads, Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. 
in that as a rule of life, it informs us of the will of God and the duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, it was written in the 1600s, that's some of the language, uh, that they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin. Together with a clear sight of the need they have for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Isn't that a wonderful way of putting it? Notice though what it's not saying. It's not saying that the law is a standard that we live up to. It's actually saying we're not under the law as a covenant of works which justifies or condemns us. I want to slow down here again and highlight more and more about this reality that the law does not justify or condemn, but under the law we all stand condemned and that it is a good thing. Remember, the way it was written in that confession is that by realizing this, it shows us a clear need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Galatians 3, 10 to 14. I also want to show that this is not an idea that I'm just coming up with, but it's all throughout the Bible. A bit of biblical theology, if you're familiar with our Dig and Discover principles. So in Galatians 3, 10 to 14, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, quoting Leviticus 8.5, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Notice a couple things in here. I hope you notice he was quoting the Old Testament a lot. So this is not a second plan that God had. This has been God's plan throughout all of history. Also notice, the law, according to Paul, is not a standard that you are going to be justified by, but just condemned. So that, though, and this is his big purpose, the blessing of Abraham would come to all who believe. Another passage that you're probably familiar with but points this direction as well as Ephesians 2, 1-9. to It starts like this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that does not work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So verse 4 and 5 here is key. Uh, There's a well-known theologian who said this was his favorite word in the Bible, in uh, verse 4, but, but God, to the point where someone knit him a scarf and they just had the word but on it. But anyway, 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This passage is pretty clear in calling salvation a gift. But what is the gift? 
See, I think part of why we're slowing down here and part of why we're talking about this is a lot of times we tend to think the gift of salvation is a gift of being freed from the penalty of sin. It means that we don't go to hell and we get to go to heaven. And while that's certainly an aspect of the truth, it is just the aspect of, a truth, of the truth. But salvation in the Bible is far more broad than that. Salvation in the Bible is actually a new life being brought from death to life. It is given a new life in an eternal life. It is a new life that comes with new desires, new motives, new actions, new wants, new hopes. It is a life that Colossians 3 tells us is hidden with Christ. With eternal life, death is not the end, but it is actually just the beginning because our old life now is gone, and it is just the new life with its new desires that remain. Perhaps another way that we could think about salvation, and this might have been a shorter way, is that in the Bible, salvation is actually a very broad term that's used in the past tense, present tense, and future tense. Now, we just tend to think about it in the past tense. We've been saved. But notice some of the things that Scripture says. In Romans 8.24, Paul says, In this hope we were saved. That's the past tense. He is talking about being saved from the penalty of sin. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says those who are being saved, right, that's present, continual, that's being saved from the power of sin, meaning the more we are sanctified, the more we are growing in our new life, the less pull sin has on us. And then Romans 13.11, talking about being saved in a future tense, because this, or besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So he's writing to believers, right? He's writing to people who have been saved. But he's saying salvation is closer. He's holding out salvation in the future tense. When it's talking about the future tense, what he's talking about is being saved from the presence of sin. What I said a moment ago, when we die and we are no longer here, but with the Lord or when Christ comes back and all sin is removed, that is what he is talking about in the future tense. We then need to remember and remind one another, salvation is a gift. It is the gift of new life. Isn't this even the analogy that Jesus uses when he talks to Nicodemus in John 3? He talks about the new, the new birth, the birth from above. Right? We may remember Nicodemus, old guy, uh, asks, can a man when he's old enter into his womb a second time? Now, I thought this might be a good time to ask the kids a question. But then thinking about it, I started getting a little uncomfortable. Did not know what they'd say. Did not want to ask them. But I think, and I think the fact that that is a bit humorous shows us this question, can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time, is pretty uh, preposterous. But Jesus, Jesus is equating that with our second birth. So as goofy as it sounds that we have anything to do with our first birth, according to Jesus, that's how we ought to think about our spiritual birth. You play no part in it. We played no part in it. All of this is meant to point to the reality that salvation is a gift, a wonderful gift from the Lord. So now I want to get back into our text. With all that in the background, how does that help us to understand Philippians 2.12? Well, if God has given us a new life, a new heart, new desires, and a new will, 
what Paul is telling us here when he says to work out your salvation is to act in accordance with these desires. One helpful question that Phil brought out two weeks ago when talking about suffering is rather than asking what do I want, which is pretty much always going to be to not suffer, we should be asking what is going to honor Christ? What does he want for us? That is the essence of the Christian life. We just sang it a moment ago. If our lives are not our own, then our lives are not our own. Our lives have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. And so as Paul says in Romans, we are to glorify God with our bodies. That question, what does Christ want for me? What would God want for me in this moment? Is incredibly practical and incredibly, incredibly helpful. But we are going to fall short of that. We are not always going to live our lives in a way that honor Christ. We are going to do things that are what we want rather than what he wants. But in that moment, remember, what is the point of the law? Part of the point of God's law is to remind us of our need for our Savior and his obedience. And in that moment, when we are falling short, we don't want to run from God's law. God's law is trying to point us to Christ. We don't want to uh, get defensive if someone points out something that we're doing wrong, but it's an opportunity to run to the Savior. And in those moments, how wonderful does he look, knowing that he did what we could not, knowing where, that he obeyed where we have sinned, and he is perfect while we are sinful. As that happens more and more, we should, according to the Bible, grow in our reverence and fear for the Lord. And that is exactly what Paul says here, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is, again, can be a little confusing. He's not saying to be afraid of the Lord. Uh, we were talking about it at breakfast the other day, and Titus said he's heard someone explain it like it, standing at the edge of a cliff. I think that's a good analogy. I would say maybe the Grand Canyon. The closer you get to the edge, uh, if you're like me, a bit afraid of heights, your heart starts to beat because you know that that is a line that you do not want to cross. As long as you stay back, though, it's pretty cool. This, though, again, is the beauty of the gospel. The glorious one that we have all crossed and sinned against, that he is good to us and he draws near to us. Listen to the way Hosea 3.5 puts it, which I think is super helpful when we're thinking about what does it mean to fear the Lord. Hosea 3.5 reads, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now you may be wondering, after what? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, the kid or not, the kid-friendly version is after Israel sold themselves out to false gods. Notice as well, though, it's after they've sinned, they return to the Lord. But notice, too, it says that they're going to return to the Lord and to their king, David. Well, this was written 300 years after David died. This is pointing to the fulfillment of the promise that God made in 2 Samuel 7 with David, that his kingdom and his son would reign eternally. And we know that's referring to Christ. The one whom the winds and the seas and even death obeyed is the one who laid down his life for his sheep. And it's his goodness that Hosea says we will learn to fear and return to. Now this is a super obscure reference. 
that no one is probably going to get. But Muppet Treasure Island, I think in terms of Muppet Treasure Island, almost every small group I have some reference to Muppet Treasure Island. Uh, maybe I need counseling. I have no idea. But there's a big uh, brown Muppet. I had to look up his name. It's called, he's Sweetums. He's kind of like the Hulk of the Muppets. But in the scene, right, it's after the um, Treasure Island. The good Muppets are fighting Long John Silver. The good Muppets escape from the ship. They're trying to fight. Things are not going well. Sweetums comes around the corner carrying a big tree, and they all stand back in fear. They know that's about to be the end. Then Sweetums turns and takes out all the bad guys, and they all just look at him dumbfounded. Uh, and they, they look at him and say, wait, I thought you were supposed to be on the other side. And he goes, ha ha, you kidding? I love you guys. And then turns off and takes off, and that's the last you see of him. Uh, that was a terrible impression, terrible reference, but I cannot help but think in those terms. The point is, as soon as they recognized that Sweetums was for them, the entire battle changed. They were no longer afraid. They were no longer worried. They knew that they had it in the bank. But that is meant to be an illustration of knowing that Christ is for us and he is good to us. That that changes how we view not only salvation, but how we view him as both powerful and good. Now, that was a lot for verse 12. We still have six more verses to go, but they're all going to be way shorter. I promise that. In verse 13, which is, for God, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here, Paul is giving them a reason. He is saying, this is why you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is at work with you. At work in you. My hope is that this would be a little bit puzzling, because he just commanded them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And now he's saying God's working in you. So we have to ask, what is it? Is it God's work or our work? This reminds me of another obscure movie reference, which I'm not going to name the movie, but there's a scene where a guy's trying to learn how to go surfing. And the guy says, you just lay down and do nothing. So he lays there. He's like, well, you got to do something. So he stands up, like, no, 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 that's too much. Do nothing. Lays down. All right, get up. You got to do something. You can't just sit there. And it's just back and forth. And the point is, it's just meant to be kind of humorous, like, well, what are you supposed to do? And I don't want us thinking that way when it comes to uh, when it comes to our sanctification, when it comes to our growth in the Christian life. See, the reality is, and we see this elsewhere in the Bible, that it is both God's work and our work when it comes to growing as Christians. Right? You could, our justification, our being made right with God, or being born again, is 100% God's work. We play no part in that. But when it comes to our sanctification, sanctification or being made more holy, we actually have a role that we can play in that, just like, although I'm very confident none of us had any role in our physical birth, we all are well aware that we can help ourselves to grow healthy physically. Similarly, you can do nothing to help yourself be born spiritually, but there are lots of things you can do to help yourself grow healthy spiritually. The short of it is, good input, good output. Right? We know we need to eat healthy and we need to exercise if we want to be healthy physically. Same thing spiritually. Good input and some good spiritual exercise. And you can recognize, right, physically, there's, it's a pretty good analogy, not to say that it's mine, but we recognize if we're eating too much without the exercise, that's a problem. If we're exercising too much without the eating, that can be a problem. You want to find a good, healthy balance. 
I think it works that way when it comes to spiritually as well. I want you, though, to notice what, God, what Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says that God is doing in his work in verse 13. He is saying that God is working both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I find that a little bit confusing, the wording, but listen to the CSB, which is a different Bible version, which I think is a bit more clear. It says, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purposes. So God is at work in our actions that we would do what pleases him. But perhaps more significantly, God is also at work changing our desires that we want what pleases him. One of the wonderful things about this is that our confidence should not be in ourselves, but it should be in the Lord that he would change our desires, that we would not have to continually white-knuckle it, just pushing through. But when we recognize our desires are not lining up, recognize that's work that God needs to do and ask him to do that work in us and in one another. From here, so if that is the work, the work is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and what that is basically saying is lay down your life because you have been bought, just like we sung 20 minutes ago or whatever. From there, though, Paul moves to the method. What does this look like? He's explaining. What does this work look like in the world? And that's found in verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here, Paul is telling us, in summary form, what it looks like to live out our salvation, this new life that we have been given. In essence, it's to do all things without grumbling or disputing. You could say that's it. If you did that one thing, if we were Northbridge to do that one thing, we would be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That is what it looks like to live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation and to shine as lights in the world. One of the things I think is so brilliant about this, why it's basically one command as a summary, is that in order to do that, in order to live without grumbling or disputing, we have to recognize our life is not our own. If our life is not our own, we don't have room to grumble. If this is what God wants for me, if this is what God has for me, then we can grow in being content. And the more we grow in recognizing that this life, again, is not our own, the more we are able to endure all things without grumbling or disputing. If we did this, Northbridge, how much would we stand out, particularly in our culture today? How much would we shine as lights in our world As far, though, as, as, as for in the midst of a crooked and twi- twisted generation, right, to understand that part. I don't think that's something that needs much explanation. You could just look around. Depending on where you're at, you can go on social media. I think you can recognize that, that we live in a world full of grumbling and disputing. But Northbridge, that we would be a people who recognize that we have been bought, that this life that we have been given is a gift to steward, to take care of, 
and that we would begin to ask more and more, what is it that would honor Christ in these moments? With this, then, we come to what I think is the main point or the main thrust of the passage. The biggest thing Paul wants his readers to get is that all this is done, verse 16 says, by holding fast to the word of life. Now, this is another one I want to explain real briefly with a little bit of biblical theology. In Deuteronomy 32, 46 to 47, it reads, Take heart, or take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Right, so notice here, Moses is saying this is the word, and it is not empty, but it is your very life. I think we can recognize this is pointing to the law, the commands that he has given. Listen to the first John verses, uh, first John one verses one to two. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Right? We recognize that's not talking about a book. That's talking about a person. It's talking about Christ, who is the word who took on flesh. 2 Corinthians 1, 18-20 combines these quite well, I think, where it says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom you proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, he was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So the promises that are given in all the commands and all the law find all their fulfillment in Christ. You could say that the promises are always pointing to Christ. They're always fulfilled in Christ. To a degree, they're functioning in the same direction with the same purpose. Here's what I mean to illustrate that. Think back on what Deuteronomy 32 said. The promise in there that by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Well, we know from the book of Hebrews that that land was a shadow, pointing to the greater reality of a greater city, a heavenly city, whose builder and designer is God, that that is the true dwelling place of God's people. It was never across the Jordan, but it has always been in heaven with him. That promise, we recognize as well, is fulfilled in Christ because he is already there, seated at the right hand of the Father. So that promise is pointing to and is fulfilled in Christ. So Northbridge, with that, would we be a people who cling to the promises that God has given us in his word, and that we would cling then to the Savior, to Christ? Reminding one another all the promises that we have in God's word are as certain as it is that Christ has been raised from the dead. It's holding fast to these promises and to the Son of God, which again is the essence of Christian life. That is the only way that we are able, as a people, 
to consider our lives not our own, but lives that have been bought, because we have been told, you have been bought. By believing that, by reminding one another of that, and reminding ourselves as well, that this life is not no longer our true home, but we've been given a new life, one that will last eternally. That is what keeps us Northbridge. Paul then continues to give them a reason for his command, where he says, So that in the day of Christ, in verse 16, I may be poured out, I may be proud, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. All of Paul's instruction to them, all of his commands, stem from his God given and God honoring love and care that he has for the people. Now that's pretty, I think, pretty instructive. I don't know about you guys, but that's something that I really need to grow in, is learning to reflect this care that he has for his people. Paul wants his work and his labor in this church, in this people, to prove fruitful. We shouldn't be surprised either that Paul gets personal in this level, in this letter, sorry. Because as Christians, we should recognize that is part of what we are called to, is to personally be invested in the lives of one another, wanting and longing that others would do well and that others would persevere. So if that was the work and the method, I want to briefly look at verses 17 and 18 at the cost. What is the cost of this new life that we have been gifted? 17 starts like this. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So there's two main consequences that Paul has in mind here. And I say consequences in the most literal sense. I think we tend to think of consequences as a bad thing, but consequences can be good or bad. But the first one that Paul considers is that this goal, the goal of laboring to build up the church, is worth pouring out his life for them. And Paul, in articulating this, is using an image that's very familiar, right? He's using the Old Testament sacrifices. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He's saying these two things are working in tandem as a way of pleasing the Lord, which is how these sacrifices worked in the Old Testament as well. They'd be offered together, and it was meant to be something that pleased the Lord. Paul uses this imagery elsewhere, too. In Romans 12, he appeals to the church at Rome and to Christians generally, saying, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And as Phil put it when, again when we were talking together, he's saying his life being poured out is just a cherry on top. But again, Paul has in mind not what's going to please himself, but what is going to please the Lord. And saying even if he has to pour out his entire life to the point of being empty, then it'll have been worth it. Paul is saying that this work is a costly work. That's one consequence. The second consequence, Paul says that this is a joyful work. Look at the second half of verse 17 and in verse 18. I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It is a costly work, but it is a joyful work. Because, Northbridge, our lives are not our own, but we have been bought with the blood of Christ, and so we are then to glorify him with our bodies. So let me pray to that end. Father, I want to thank you that you have 
gifted us a new life in Christ. Thank you to have given us a new life that will continue, that grows, that changes our very desires. Lord, would you remind us that that is, that that is what you are about? If we would have been content with a list of rules to live up to, then Christ would not have came. But you sent him to do what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, to live perfectly, that we might be forgiven and brought from death to life by trusting him and clinging to him. Would you help us to be a church that does cling to him and reminds others to cling to him as well, knowing that our lives are hidden with him and that he is seated in heaven now? Would you remind us that that is where our joy is, that our joy is wrapped up with Christ and his joy, that one day we will be united with him, and that sin and all its effects will be gone from this world as you are making all things new. Would you remind us that that also starts with us, that your work starts with your people as you are making us new? Would you help us to give ourselves to that work and that we would do so with fear and trembling, knowing that you are good and that you are for us? And it's because we recognize your goodness as for us through Christ that we pray in his name. Amen.